Microplastics are everywhere. From the air we breathe, to the water we drink, to the food we eat. From Arctic snow to Chinese river systems. From remote Indian Ocean beaches to secluded Scottish locks. Microplastics have infiltrated even the most remote of locations, and the effect of this on ecosystems is potentially catastrophic. So catastrophic that the EU is about to ban the deliberate addition of microplastics into any new products. Microplastics are very, very small particles made of plastic. Less than five millimetres, in fact. They are released, for example, when we drive a car from the tires on driving off on the road. But they are also in many products and they're intentionally added to them. For example, cosmetics, fertilizers, paints, but also in places like artificial football pitches. We estimate here in ECA that about 45,000 tons of this plastic is emitted into Europe from these intentionally added microplastics. ECA is the European Chemicals Agency, and the person speaking is Executive Director Bjorn Hansen. The organisation was commissioned to conduct a risk analysis of these intentionally added microplastics by the European Commission as part of its European Plastics Strategy. ICA has concluded that there is a risk to the European environment for using microplastics in products. And we've also concluded that the most effective means to address that risk is to ban microplastics in such uses. Welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Bernadette Ballantyne. And I'm Alex Conacher. As the EU seeks to ban the addition of microplastics to products, we are investigating a new breakthrough in biochemical engineering that could provide a natural alternative. A breakthrough that came from weeks, months and years of studying the way that natural proteins hold together in materials such as spider's silk. Now, for the first time ever, scientists have re-engineered plant-based proteins to create a natural alternative to plastic that has comparable mechanical properties. Just as importantly, these new plastic alternatives are also 100% biodegradable, meaning that they won't end up polluting the planet. Given that the EU is about to ban intentionally added microplastics, it could not have come at a better time. So I'm Simon Hombersley, I'm uh, the CEO of Zampler, and our, our mission is to address plastic pollution. And we're focusing in particular to start with on microplastics and single-use plastics. Uh, and that's where our science area has the right solution, but that's also where we think there's a good commercial opportunity. Zampler is a company that originated at Cambridge University in the UK. So my co-founder, uh, Professor Thomas Knowles at the University of Cambridge, is one of the world's leaders in protein biophysics. So he's an expert in understanding how proteins function. So I'm Thomas Knowles. I'm a professor of physical chemistry and biophysics here at the University of Cambridge. And I lead a very interdisciplinary research group of chemists, biophysicists, biochemists. And what we do is we sort of really try and understand the fundamental principles that govern protein activity in nature. He asked himself some time ago, about 15 years ago, the question, how does a spider make silk? And silk is just a protein material. Uh, and the spider takes a fly very energy efficiently and converts it into one of the strongest materials on Earth. 
And so the spider really requires minimal energy input, so it effectively eats a fly, and that's enough to produce both the energy and the raw materials to form this amazing uh, sort of engineering structure. And of course, if you compare this to what happens when you try and make, say, steel or even, even plastics, the, it's really not comparable. So we were really fascinated by trying to understand the fundamental principles by which spider, but more generally nature, these types of really, really high performance materials are made. And what's interesting from a chemistry, molecular sciences point of view is, is the fact that often in, in engineering, when we think about making strong materials, we, we sort of often fall back to sort of really strong bonding between within the molecules and between the between the molecules. But what's remarkable about protein-based materials such as silk is that actually the bonding between the molecules is relatively weak. So it's it's hydrogen bonding. So these are non-covalent bonds. We were really fascinated by trying to understand how nature manages to build these incredibly strong materials at low energy cost with using these building blocks, which at first sight might look inferior to the ones. Uh, that we use in a synthetic setting, but actually result in materials with absolutely astonishing performance. In chemistry terms, covalent bonds are the strongest types of connection. In this kind of bonding, the electrons that whiz around the outside of a nucleus of an atom connect with an electron from another atom, forming a pair that's bonded together. When there is more than one atom connected with covalent bonds, they become molecules. Where atoms share more than two electron pairs, the bonding is incredibly strong. In fact, this is the secret behind the incredible hardness of diamond, whose carbon atoms share four electron pairs with other atoms. Non-covalent bonds don't use electron sharing and rely on other interactions between atoms. It is here where the team at the University of Cambridge focused their research in order to understand the very strong connections in spider silk and other natural proteins. And we spent several years trying to understand the fundamental principles and, and we really came to the conclusion that actually what gave this really high uh, sort of mechanical performance was the fact that there was a very irregular array of these hydrogen bonding networks really effectively between every single residue in these in these peptides, so really backbone, backbone hydrogen bond. And, and, it, and it was really that uh, sort of basic motif which allowed uh, nature to generate these really strong materials out of proteins and peptides. Hydrogen bonds are created through the electrostatic forces acting between particles. On their own, hydrogen bonds are much weaker than covalent or ionic bonds, but as a regularly arranged network with lots of bonds, they become incredibly strong. Importantly, these individual connections don't require lots of energy to break them down, meaning that they're easily biodegradable, which is something we'll get to later. So, so of course, then what once what once we sort of understood a bit more about the bonding, then of course the question was, could we take materials which were not related to other types of other types of proteins and get them to assemble into these um, sort of filamentous structures which have high uh, mechanical uh, stability? And so that was really the next step in the journey. And so. So it turned out that we could actually do that with a number of different sequences, which didn't look at all similar to silk, yet formed structures which had a lot of similarity, even down to the sort of really molecular level packing with, with silk. And once Thomas had worked out what the spider was doing, he then realized that he could learn from the spider and apply the same process to commonly available plant protein all around us in nature. And, and make useful materials that actually might provide a sustainable solution. So that's where the idea came from. Simon acknowledges that there have been many other breakthroughs in the use of natural materials. 
but each have significant challenges. Starch-based natural polymers are highly brittle, for example, and alignate polymers derived from seaweed have limited mechanical strength and water resistance. Even cellulose-based plastic alternatives need chemical addition to perform as a plastic would, meaning that they are no longer biodegradable. That's the absolute critical thing about our technology, is plant polysaccharides, which are the main materials that you find in, in plastic replacements, they're very easy to work with and they're commonly available and they're low cost and so forth, but they lack performance, they lack structural strength. So to be useful, you have to chemical cross-link them, which then means their end of life is affected. They don't degrade when they hit the environment, they're no longer natural. What we can do is engineer plant proteins without any chemical cross-linking and only using the hydrogen bonding, the intramolecular hydrogen bonding, to create strong new materials. Critical to all of this molecular engineering was working out how to get these natural proteins to self-assemble and create these networks of hydrogen bonds without the addition of any harmful chemicals. And the answer came from the way the spider spins its silk. And it's actually really interesting. So the way the spider does that is there's, there's two length scales, really. So there's, there's, a, there's a molecular length scale, nanometer uh, length scale, where what the spider does is, is, through using shear flow, manages to align these molecules such that they can form this strong hydrogen bonding network. So that's almost sort of a self-assembly step. So the spider creates conditions in the spinning duct where the molecules have ideal conditions to, to come together and lock into place. And then there's sort of a micro scale, micro to macro scale step where the spinning duct really gives the thread overall shape uh, to the structure. So it's really a multi-scale process. Essentially, the team have replicated the process which happens naturally inside a spider's spinning duct. So what we've done is we've taken these basic principles from nature and we've applied them to processing plant proteins. So we have exactly the same steps. So what we do is we, we find conditions under which we can get the plant proteins to self-assemble into these densely hydrogen bonded structures that are technically beta sheet rich. Beta sheets are the secondary structures formed when these long chains of particles connect with each other using hydrogen bonding that Professor Knowles says can be thought of almost like a zip being fastened. And then we have a sort of second length scale where we impart a particular shape to these materials which is technologically useful. So it can be, for example, a microcapsule for encapsulation purposes, or it can be a film, it can even be a patterned film for additional functionality. And critical to all of this is that unlike synthetic polymers, or even historic processing of natural polymers, the conditions used to replicate the spider's spinning duct don't use complex and potentially polluting chemicals. Of course, Professor Knowles couldn't tell us the exact conditions, because that would be giving away the secret recipe. But parameters such as the protein concentration, temperature, shear force and co-solvents are all really important. And so what we do is we explore this very multidimensional phase space to find conditions under which we get molecular self-assembly to be very favourable and to lead us towards the structures that we want to form. Structures that people want and need. Structures for which there's enough market demand that major investors have provided over £8 million in finance to enable Zampler to begin commercial production. I think it's unusual for a material science company, which is essentially what Zampler is, to have such a, a force of consumer and regulatory drivers on its side. 
So this is a material that's emerging from the science base at absolutely the perfect time. Everybody believes that plastic pollution is a problem and needs to be solved. Even the fossil fuel majors recognize that we need to move to a world where we're making these materials at a, in a more sustainable way. This is an interesting point because using natural proteins means that the feedstock for Zampler will be an agricultural one. And one thing that I'm personally quite passionate about is that the, the plastics industry was a 20th century construct and, and the value chain is bonkers. You know, drilling oil in Saudi, shipping it to Korea to be cracked, to be turned into nurdles in the States, to come back to the UK, to be made into a plastic film, to wrap some tomatoes in Spain, which come back to Britain and then get thrown away. This is madness. When we do it for the 21st century, we have to think locally. We have to think about how we're using materials in a circular way, close to source, how we're avoiding that vast, uncosted supply chain, essentially. Locally grown plants turned into locally used plastic alternatives that can then locally biodegrade. The peas and other legumes are sort of food grade and they're readily available at the moment. So that's been the focus of Zampler's work so far. And we're also making edible plastics and edible microcapsules. So that's an obvious fit for a food grade material. The next step we're taking is into non-food sources. Uh, so things that are coming currently to animal feed and we're particularly looking at agricultural co-products, so, so essentially waste streams from existing materials out there. Now, what's particularly good for us is pretty much every plant has got protein in, and we are pretty much able to make plant protein materials from any plant. So when we think locally, we can start looking at cassava in Africa, or trophy in South America, or rice in Asia. We can start working with local crops to build local plastics in, in, in that particular region. Of course it would have to be cost effective and there would have to be sufficient local demand for Zampler's products. With legislation forthcoming in the EU, this has clearly helped the business case. But moving away from single-use plastics in general is a global movement. The EU microplastics ban is, is, is a very helpful driver for our business. So we potentially have solutions for a whole series of product categories that are being banned in there. So not just fragrance microcapsules, but things like seed coatings, for instance, another area we're interested in. So it, pretty much every seed, wheat seed in North America goes into the soil with a colored plastic coating on it. Uh, and most of the time those have uh, additives on, you know, fertilizers and antifungal agents and so forth. So that, that application is making sure that it flows smoothly through the hopper. Uh, it's often colored to prevent birds eating it and it can be optically checked in the field and so forth. So this boosts the yield of, of the seed and is a very sensible thing for, for agriculture to be doing. But that is a, that's a melamine formaldehyde material. This is basically a thermosetting plastic being deliberately distributed in soil. And what's shocking is we've been doing this now for about 30 years. The actual composition of our soils is changing. The drainage in certain soils is changing because it's been converted to plastic, essentially, which is a very alarming thing. So the EU is banning that category of product. And the timetable for these bans is relatively tight. You know, the EU is not messing about here. So a lot of the major companies in, in home care, personal care, have got a real challenge on their hands in how they can transition away from fossil fuel materials.
the race is on then to find new ways of carrying fragrances in washing detergent, or enabling controlled release of chemicals in medicine, or delivering nutrients or seeds in agriculture. We're up against the, the plastics industry, the oil industry essentially, and, and there's a lot of work going on at the moment about the, the oil industry's future and its stranded assets and so forth. And, and essentially the plastics is the oil industry's plan B as we reduce our use of, of oil as fuel, essentially, and move towards electric vehicles, including potentially aeroplanes and so forth, then plastics will become a larger proportion of their business. So that means that we can account for the bit that's drilling it out of the ground, the bit that's cracking it. All of that energy use comes directly into the plastics making story. So I think however you look at it, growing plants and turning them into useful materials better than drilling oil, cracking it into plastic and leaving it to pollute the planet for a couple of thousand years. Simon is all too aware of sustainability issues around land use for agriculture. And we are looking as far ahead as we can to ensure that we don't create any sort of issues of food versus plastics and we don't inappropriately use land that should be or materials or crops that should be going to food to feed human beings to turn them into plastic to package things. That isn't solving the problem here. Um, but it is a very complicated area. Complicated? Certainly. Necessary? Definitely. A global trend towards the reduction of single-use plastics is already underway. It began with the banning of microbeads across the EU and North America back in 2015 and quickly gathered pace. African nations like Kenya and Zimbabwe banned plastic bags along with major US states such as New York, California and Hawaii. Other locations, such as the UK, moved to tax the use of plastic bags, whereas China's demanding that all plastic bags are biodegradable by 2022. At the same time, the UK banned single-use straws, stirrers and cotton buds. Next are these deliberately added microplastics, and legislation on single-use plastics in general is expected to tighten globally. Yet this won't be enough to stop the flow of plastic pollution. Microplastics account for 45,000 tonnes a year in Europe, but this is only a fraction of the total plastic that finds its way into the world's oceans. Worldwide, more than 8 million tonnes of plastic per year finds its way into the seas. If we're to stem the tide, there's much, much more to be done, from eliminating the use of plastics to more recycling and reuse of plastic products. Something that the Ellen MacArthur Foundation calls a new plastics economy, where plastic waste is eliminated. In 2016, our report showed that if we continue with business as usual, there'll be more plastic than fish in the ocean by 2050. We need to eliminate all the plastic we don't need. We need to innovate for the plastic we do, making sure it is reusable, recyclable and compostable, and importantly, we need to circulate everything we produce, be that plastic or a biological component which replaces it. Over 500 organisations have signed up to this global commitment, but progress has been variable among the participants. The same can be said of global governments, who hold the policy and regulatory levers that have been shown to make the biggest difference. By banning microplastics, the EU says that 500,000 tonnes will be prevented from entering the world's oceans over the next decade. But that still leaves 79.5 million tonnes of single-use plastic flowing into global waters. 
Tackling that requires a global effort and a lot more innovation, which we're going to report on in future podcasts. Without this, plastic waste will continue to pile up and pollute ecosystems for us and for generations to come. Engineering Matters is a production of Reby Media. Our producers are Alex Conacher, Bernadette Ballantyne, Rian Owen, Ross McPherson, John Young, Will North, Velo Mitrovic and Tim Sheehan. This episode was written and hosted by Bernadette Ballantyne, edited and co-hosted by me, Alex Conacher, sound engineering by Ross McPherson, series supervision by John Young, and our own bioengineering producer is Rory Harris. Special thanks to Zampler. Thank you for listening. Engineering Matters is on all podcast apps. Tweet us at Engineer Matters or share us on LinkedIn.